The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza in San Francisco with John Fort back at headquarters. Three big stories today. Of course, the Fed and Jackson Hole. All eyes are on the markets as Powell promises to lower inflation. The Nasdaq is down about 2% at the moment, and we are live in Wyoming this hour. Later, a suitor for Electronic Arts. Details on the acquisition rumor that took over the street briefly this morning. But does a deal for Amazon actually make sense? Finally, we're going to look at a firm. The stock is getting absolutely crushed this morning. Founder and CEO Max Levchin is going to join us um, later on in the show, right here on Tech Check. Let's get back to the Fed, though, um, John, because all eyes are on this market. The Nasdaq now getting closer to session lows. Um, tech and the growth trade, the obvious underperformers today. Um, there was this thought going into the Fed chair's speech that perhaps the markets had come into better alignment with Fed speakers, what we've heard from them over the past two weeks. Um, but, John, maybe not anticipating this much hawkishness. Market's still working through this, but Powell used words like, forcefully using tools to restore price stability. And the takeaway seems to be like tighter for longer. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Fed speak has been trying to deliver this message for a couple weeks now. I mean, uh, I talked to Mary Daly a couple weeks ago, and, and so many were coming out trying to say, hey, don't expect us to cut rates next year. We're going to hike them and we're going to leave them high for a while. And, uh, and now it sounds like the market maybe is starting to believe it this time, but we're we're coming off a level where things have gotten pretty heidy. But, yeah, even Apple is off 1.5% this morning. Google is off 4%, uh, better known as Alphabet these days. Uh, Amazon off, too. So e- even the larger technology stocks that have been performing pretty well uh, are taking it on the chin this morning. You mentioned growth stocks. Uh, those are off as well. Um, you, our firm, we're going to talk to Max Levchin mm-hmm. in a bit, but that's off 19.5%. But Coinbase, we've been talking about, is off 7 Peloton has its own troubles, down 7 as well. Marvell just reported earnings. It's off 6.5%. Mm-hmm. Um, e- even though fundamentally it's doing well, still some supply chain issues that we see reflected yes. in what's happening in the chips. And maybe I would just add the ARK Innovation ETF to that list, John, uh, so indicative of that growth trade. That's down uh, almost 4%. Um, of course, we've been talking about it all morning. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell saying earlier this morning um, at the Central Bank's yearly symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, that it will continue to maintain restrictive monetary policy until, quote, the job is done. Our next guest says as potential rate hikes loom to focus on long-term quality, namely IT, healthcare, and energy names. Joining us now, Wells Fargo Investment Institute's Scott Wren. Uh, Scott, good morning. Thanks for joining us this Friday. What are markets hey, morning, working Deirdre. through right now? What are your takeaways from the speech? Well, I, all I can say, you know, it was short and sweet, and I don't know why any market participant would be surprised at what uh, Chair Powell said. I mean, it was basically reiterating exactly what the Fed has been saying for months now. Um, you know, we haven't been buying into this Fed pivot and all those kinds of things. I think the the market's really looking to next year and what's going to happen. And we've got a couple of hikes priced in 
Uh, we think the Fed funds rate after the first of uh, the year, first couple of meetings, it'll be about 4%. And we're certainly not looking for rate cuts next year. So I, I, I'm not sure, you know, uh, uh, I'm not sure what the market was was thinking the chair was going to say, but at least in our minds, he said e exactly what we expected. Yeah, he was certainly hawkish in line with some of the other Fed speakers. But does this come down to credibility? And that's perhaps why some investors thought that he might ease back. Um, they were talking about this on the previous hour. Arkashin said that, you know, Fed Chair Powell has a credibility problem and that word transitory just hangs around him. So is he restoring that credibility, Scott? Or do you think he's trying too hard, perhaps, by invoking history lessons that maybe don't apply as much today? Fed did have a credibility problem. They still ha they still do have one, Deirdre. But I think the last couple of months, the last couple of meetings, uh, they're building that back. And you know, clearly, we have very very high inflation. It's going to take some time to come down. Uh, the Fed's more than willing, as they've stated many many times, uh, to give up growth to get there. Uh, we know that the unemployment rate's going to go up. I mean, we're looking for about five point three percent on the unemployment rate by the end of next year. Um, you know, the Fed may not. You know, they'll they won't say they want the unemployment rate to go up, but I mean, they'll hem and haw around it with some other verbiage. But, uh, you know, I mean, those are the kind of things that have to happen. The Fed has to attack demand. They can't do anything about the supply chain disruption. They can't do anything about Russia invading Ukraine. The only thing they can do is try to dampen demand. Yeah, Scott, I'm going to call out uh, session lows in the major indices. The Dow now off 500 points, which is just over one and a half percent. The Nasdaq uh, down two and a third percent, the S&P right about there in the middle at 1.8. But I mean, should we pay so much attention to the reaction to the Fed, given, like you said, everybody should have expected this. And given I want to focus specifically in tech right now, we just had these pretty good earnings results from the likes of Intuit, Snowflake, uh, some others showing that the demand for software in particular remains pretty strong, that it's become a fundamental run the business sort of issue with digital transformation. And even in a mild recession, they seem prepared. Does a dip like this then offer opportunity? Technology certainly it's underperformed, John, and and uh, you know everybody knows that. Um, you know if you think that technology, uh, in our opinion, you know earnings are going to still be good there. Uh, certainly, we're not interested in technology companies that might have a product somewhere down the road. They're not making any money. That's not the kind of technology we're interested in. We want the ones that have good cash flow and good products. Um, so we do think it's an opportunity. And as I said, healthcare, you know, that's more defensive. Uh, energy. You know, we still think there's some upside here in oil and and in the energy complex uh, overall. So, you know, we've adjusted portfolios. You know, we've downgraded industrials, uh, consumer discretionary, uh, real estate. Uh, financial. So we've gotten more defensive. And what we're trying to do right now is play capital preservation rather than capital appreciation. And that's probably going to go on, uh, you know, until the middle of the recession. We think one will start for real uh, here in the next couple of months and probably last into the middle of next year. I understand that you're being cautious and, and that makes sense. But at the same time, so many growth stocks have come down so far and we've had so much M&A. Uh, and rumors of M&A, both from large companies and from private equity, doesn't that signal that even if a company is still in growth stage where it's not throwing off cash, 
there are opportunities there? Opportunities, and there always are. And and uh, you, know, you know, this is not a rising tide lifts all boats. When when we do finally see uh, growth names go back up, but you're going to have to be uh, picking and choosing here, at least in the initial stages. Um, and so so that's a, that's the situation. And technology, I mean, if if you're a tech company and you're dealing with uh, things like efficiency and automation, I mean, clearly this labor shortage we have isn't going to go away anytime soon. And I think those types of technology companies are going to gain. Uh, interest, um, even the ones that are on the verge of having an actual product out there on the market. So uh, you can be selective and find some opportunities. But in general, you know, we want good balance sheets, cash mm -hmm. flow, uh, own their niche, lots of products, buying back shares. That's really the kind of companies and technology, really any company in any sector right now uh, that we're looking for. Scott, what is your view on holding cash? You saw a lot of hedge funds um, up their allocation this year. And for the longer term investor, it may be just too difficult to play this market. Some others have suggested that maybe they should hold on to more cash, even with the rate of inflation. Talking to clients about on, on bad days, bad weeks, if you have a two plus year time horizon, you need to have a plan and be stepping in here. And if you feel kind of indigestion about doing that, that's probably a good thing. You know, the, the worst time to buy stocks is when everybody's happy about stocks. Uh, one of the best times historically is when, you know, you don't feel very good about buying and, and neither does anyone else. So long-term investors, bad days, bad weeks, we want them stepping in incrementally. You know, if your time horizon's three months, six months, or you have a, you know, a big liquidity event, you have to write a big check for your daughter's wedding or something like that, um, you know, you might want to hold on to some cash. So I think it's it's a matter of what's your time horizon here? Because I think in the next six or nine months, uh, we're going to see plenty of volatility. Right. But you're largely seeing this as an opportunity. Um, Scott, yes. Ren, thanks very yeah. much. Yeah, I think skies are going to be brighter next year. Might take a little time, but, hmm. um, um, you know, we're optimistic the Fed's on once it. we get okay. away from this. Yeah. Thank you. Talk to you again. Thanks, soon. Deirdre. Yeah, going to keep checking the markets. Just want to mention the Dow now down 525 points, uh, taking a leg down recently. The S&P off about 2 percent, NASDAQ about 2.5 Meanwhile, we are also watching another interesting story, uh, a Swedish media report saying Amazon was going to make a bid to buy video game maker EA. CNBC's David Faber shooting down that rumor, saying no such offer on the table. Might be uh, no deal, but there's certainly a reason that EA shares jumped. One could argue it's not crazy to think Amazon might do this. Let's bring in CNBC's Steve Kovacs. Steve, there's there's... Three trends that I'm watching in gaming right now. One, giants vertically integrating. Two, software bigs going horizontal, trying to get into mobile. And then the combination of tools and data. There's so much action. Something like this could happen, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and John, Amazon already has a gaming division. They make some first-party titles uh, with... Uh, some hits and misses in between there. Their first game that was actually canceled. But they also have this thing called Luna, which is uh, a streaming video game product. Think of it as the Netflix of gaming. Microsoft has a similar product. You pay one subscription and you can stream hundreds of gaming titles. But look, you cannot have a successful gaming product without good first-party titles. The Xbox wouldn't exist without the Halo franchise. Nintendo wouldn't exist without the Super Mario franchise and so on and so forth. And so the, when I heard 
heard this news this morning, the first thought that popped into my mind is, okay, Amazon would want a studio like this because they need good first-party titles, and EA has that. They have the NFL Madden series. They have The Sims. They have Apex Legends, a very popular Fortnite competitor, and, and on down the line. So EA would fit very nicely into these big plans that Amazon and Microsoft have to create this Netflix of gaming and put uh, make it so you basically don't have to buy an expensive console or PC to stream it. On top of that, we all know AWS is a huge profit driver for Amazon. That's where most of their profits come from. And that these kind of services are great for the cloud business. That's another reason why Microsoft is about to drop uh, almost $70 billion to buy Activision next year, John. Yeah, Steve, they have big plans, uh, but regulators may have other plans, right? I mean, also, Amazon has Twitch, which has been pretty successful for them. But um, notably, you mentioned the Microsoft Activision Blizzard deal. That is still in limbo. Um, you can see even the price of Activision Blizzard isn't even at the price that Microsoft is is uh, offering. So some skepticism there. Um, everything sounds good, but that's a big reason why Amazon may not actually do a deal like this. Yeah, absolutely, Deirdre. And that was the big concern when the, for Microsoft, rather, when the Activision deal was announced. And that's also why Microsoft is taking its sweet time getting that deal through. They, they're giving themselves 18 months to work with regulators to make sure all their I's are dotted and T's are crossed to make sure they can actually buy this company. Amazon, again, despite all the regulatory headwinds and, and talk from the FTC and DOJ about M&A activity and big tech, they're still going through with their acquisitions. They closed MGM just fine, and they're, uh, they just announced a couple other acquisitions. So, look, it, it could still happen, and, and big tech is still moving forward. And, again, gaming is such a small part of Amazon overall, and so they can also make that argument like, you know, this is not a uh, – this is more of a – an add-on, which is the same kind of argument Microsoft's going to make as well, well. And that's why I think it's important for us to try to focus investors on where the opportunity right. is in gaming, given these shifting dynamics. Uh, we were talking a couple weeks ago about Unity Iron Source, App Lovin', kind of trying to interrupt that candlelit dinner, uh, break up <laughs> that engagement and get in. But, but the, theoretically, it's about combining tools for creating rich 3D environments, many of which are going to be gaming environments, with the data to be able to insert ads or to yeah. increase discoverability. Where are the opportunities, do you think, stock-wise, perhaps things that are already public, where investors should look and think, well, maybe this is something that comes into play that gets acquired or that's the sort of asset mobile gaming-wise that's interesting? Yeah, you're exactly right with that iron source and... Uh App Lovin, I'm sorry, Iron Source and Unity deal is mostly about mobile gaming. But you want to talk about mobile gaming? Let's talk Take Two Interactive, which just bought Zynga and closed that acquisition. And they, when I was talking about those first party titles, John, about how if you want a successful gaming business, you really need those bang up first party titles. Take Two has Grand Theft Auto, which is the Grand Theft Auto Five, by the way, the single most profitable. Um, uh, entertainment property of all time, plus Red Dead Redemption. Those are still driving a lot of revenue for those companies. So Take-Two is a, a company to look at. If, if EA is in play, Take-Two certainly is as well. All right, Steve Kovac, thank you. Thanks. Now for more on what's happening in gaming, and hey, we'll throw in uh, platforms as well. Let's bring in The Verge Editor-in-Chief, Nilay Patel. Nilay, good to see you. So um, what do you think is the most important strategic trend happening right now uh, in, I'm not gonna, just going to say gaming, because mobile and app stores 
are part of that, this metaverse nonsense that we're talking about less and less, but was getting pushed a few months ago is part of that too? Yeah, well, first I want to point out that Steve talks some trash on Twitter. I am definitively wearing a cooler jacket. Um, most importantly in gaming, though, is the the big trend is where the money is moving, right? So gaming is it was on track to be like a $191 billion business. People are thinking it's going to contract to $188 billion business. That's mostly because a lot of games got pushed back. The piece of the pie that's growing in there is microtransactions. If you look at the mobile market, almost all the games are free to play, and you buy a lot of stuff in the games. So that's where the revenue comes from. Fortnite is one of the biggest games in the world. Free to get Fortnite. Lots of transaction in Fortnite. It makes all the money for Epic. What you're seeing from all these companies is right now you can buy Madden. I buy Madden every year for $75. It is basically a roster update, but there's tons of transactions inside of it. So if you're looking at a cloud business like an Amazon Luna or Microsoft's Game Pass, you've got stable revenue because you've got a subscription business, but then inside the games, you've got the ability to make hit products that transact at a higher rate from consumer money. You can't do that in music. You can't do that in movies. No one's shopping during the movie. But people are shopping in the games, and I think that's where a lot of the opportunity is. That's where your app loving comes in with targeted advertisement. That's where data comes in. You can target digital products to consumers. That's the part of the market that's growing, and I think that's where fundamentally all the energy is because every other kind of entertainment product is moving towards streaming. So I, I wonder uh, where can you isolate that opportunity? Because you've got bigger uh, transaction players out there that you can't uh, necessarily play them for digital transactions. You've got the big app stores that are a part of Apple, maybe a part of Microsoft, et cetera. You're not necessarily going to get the lift off of that trend there. Um, you, you've got the, the chip makers uh, that are doing mobile chips or that are doing console chips, you don't necessarily get the benefit there. Where can you, where can an investor look to say, okay, if I want to bet on these microtransactions increasing, here's a company that has IP skin in the game. Uh, well, so I would definitely look at the big players in games. Like, obviously, Microsoft is doing well. I think EA right now, regardless of the acquisition noise, you know, they just had their earnings. Their CEO said, look, we're on track to be independent we know we can be independent. They've got some of the biggest franchises in the world. I really did just buy Madden again. They changed the passing mechanic. I'm so much worse at it. I'm going to play that game forever and ever just to get back to how good I was when I was 16. Those franchises for EA are huge. Then I think not necessarily on the chip side, but on the streaming side, game streaming gets them away from Apple's App Store rules. If they can just stream the games to you over the web, which many of the companies are trying to do, and there's a lot of providers in the chain that create that technology platform, then their revenue is going to increase because they're not paying 30% to Apple. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for how they get away from the platforms. Microsoft's trying to move directly into smart TVs now. Uh, and instead, pass those revenues on to other partners. It, it may be at different cuts. All right. Neil Patel, thank you. That is a cool jacket, but you should go with a lighter shade. It's summer. <laughs> My mom wants me in colors too, man. It's never going to happen. Does, does Neil wear anything other than black? I'm not aware of this. Uh, but we do want to get back to the broader markets, which are close to session lows. The Nasdaq is down 2.5%. The Dow is off by nearly 550 points. We're going to bring in Satori fund founder Dan Niles. Um, Dan, we're so glad you could... Uh, join us last minute. You've been calling this. You've been telling us all year that the market has further to fall. Any upside was a bull market rally. What did you make of the Fed chair's speech and subsequent market reaction? I mean, it's what I expected. Um, it's nice to see that the market was 
you know, actually interpreting this properly. <laughs> um, it's, it's not normal to see a Fed chairman, and I put out a tweet on this, saying that, you know, they will also bring some pain to households and businesses, and that failure to restore price stability would mean far greater pain. You know, he put pain in his speech twice. Mm-hmm. It was on purpose. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people, and, and it makes sense, right? For 13 years, every time the Fed has said, well, we're going to try to stamp out, you know, inflation or raise rates, every time the market has dropped, the Fed has then cut rates, started easing. Think 2018 um, as an example of that. And so after 13 years of basically, you know, giving stock market investors everything that they want, and anytime there's a tantrum saying, okay, you know, let me soothe you, it's going to take a while to break that mentality um, in the markets. And, but I think the big picture that investors are missing is for the first time in 13 years, you've got massive inflation. You've got the highest inflation in 40 years. And given the Fed screwed up in the 1970s, it's easy to understand in the sense that they cut rates. They started raising rates, inflation came down, then they cut rates, inflation took off again, they then started coming down, then they cut rates again. That's why it's referred to as the Burns blunder. And I think Powell referred to that in his speech that he doesn't want to kind of repeat want to repeat those mistakes. So it's gonna take a while, I think, for investors to believe the Fed, but mm-hmm. you know, today was a good first step in getting there. Yeah, it certainly feels like investors are believing them now. Uh, Meanwhile, markets at session lows, Dan. Um, How are you currently playing this going forward? I think previously you had switched to more long than shorts going into the next few weeks or months. Uh, What do you think? Is there going to be more pain ahead? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we, when we heard the speech, we're like, okay, you know, it's time to put, you know, more shorts on. We took about 15% of the portfolio and put, put that on when the market, you know, rallied back to flat, which made zero sense to us. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, I think we said this in a CNBC interview um, earlier this week, where, you know, you take a $200 EPS estimate for the S&P for 2023, and that's about a 20% reduction from where it was at 250 at one point. And then you say, well, do I think CPI is above 3%? If so, over the last 70 years, the multiple on those earnings for the S&P on a trailing basis is 15 times. 200 times 15 gets you to 3,000 on the S&P. So, and that's being, you could argue, conservative because you could put an even lower multiple on that. Obviously, that's down over 25% from current levels and below the prior low. So I, I think you have to keep that in mind. But more importantly, or as importantly, I should say, the other thing you learned this week was that the weakness in the fundamentals is not just in consumer anymore, and it's not just PCs and smartphones. You heard from Salesforce, numbers came down there more than people thought. They talked about weaknesses at the end of the quarter. You know, they're $7 billion in revenues a quarter. Snowflake is $500 million. So you need to pay a lot more attention to what CRM said about enterprise. And then obviously this morning well, you had Dell, and they talked about weakness in business as well. Yeah. So this is spreading in it, terms of the weakness fundamentally. Are you sure it's spreading, though? Because Snowflake uh, actually did better than a lot of people expected. Intuit was pretty strong as well, saying that um, 
you know, the uh, cloud platforms, the kind of data-driven approach to running a business has become fundamental and, uh, and operational as opposed to as much of a capital expense and, and perhaps more, more optional. Uh, should investors take some encouragement from that? No, and that's why I said earlier, John, right? Snowflake is $500 million in revenues a quarter. Salesforce is $7 billion. So you need to kind of look at all of this stuff big picture because you're not going to have every company saying things are terrible at once. It's a process, and I've said this you know, multiple times, and it takes time for this to work itself out. The big companies can't get around a macro slowdown. $7 billion in revenues a quarter, they're the, the, the purest enterprise company out there. I mean, Microsoft, obviously, but they've got a lot of consumer exposure through their PC division, their mm. gaming division, which is why I focus on Salesforce. So the fact that they're saying that matters, given it's purely concentrated in enterprise. Snowflake is small enough at $500 million, you know, they're not even a tenth of the size of Salesforce, where they may be able to get through niches much like other um, companies out there. And that's why I also focused on Dell, where, you know, lots of enterprise exposure. And if you remember last quarter, the stock rallied off their results because they said, yeah, consumer's weak, but enterprise is great. Yeah. This quarter, they had some issues with enterprise. The other piece of Finally, this, though, which I, I, yeah. Get to the other piece also, if you can, but I want to get your thoughts on, back to the consumer a bit, inventories that we saw in some retailers, including Gap, Overnight, and then also Nordstrom and Macy's bringing down uh, their revenue outlooks for the year. I mean, I know you're making your enterprise case, but we're, we're seeing the consumer questions lingering. I, I think, John, that's a fantastic point because that's your biggest risk for the last six months of the year. I'm, I've said this multiple times. You had, during COVID, people spent on goods because they couldn't go on vacation. They couldn't go... Um, you know, to their favorite restaurants, etc. I think this holiday season, you're going to see all that pent-up demand switch from goods to services. That's why you're seeing such weakness in smartphones, PCs, Peloton bikes, etc. All the stuff that we spent money on during the holidays. I think you're going to have a very large problem in terms of Christmas. Mm -hmm. To your point, there's a lot of inventories that have stacked up. We've got short spread out where the first thing we're looking at is how much inventory is accumulated on the balance sheet. And that's where we're trying to focus our efforts in terms of what we're short. And that's going to hit really, I think, in the March quarter, because if you don't sell it through on Christmas, you're going to have to burn that inventory in the March quarter. That's why I've been saying for a while, I think this process is going to take into 2023, you know, mid to back half of it before it's completely sorted out. Big portion of it is what you just brought up, which is the inventory piece of this. Dan Niles, thank you so much for joining us on short notice on this market day when markets are coming off session lows, but still pretty deeply in the red. We'll be back in two minutes. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted with the finest materials for irresistible comfort every single night. Now, save up to $800 on select adjustable mattress sets only at StearnsAndFoster.com. Lesser savings may apply. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts 
Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. Let's get to our Steve Leisman, who is at Jackson Hole as Chairman Powell walks out from his speech, a speech that has enormous implications for the markets. Steve, what are you seeing? Yeah, we're well, right now. Uh, Chair Powell is doing a uh, kind of tradition here of a walk uh, for the cameras here and for the considerable media presence. And I don't know if we have that shot, but we have uh, Fed Chair Powell taking a walk with there he is with his two other uh, vice chairs. Uh, that's John Williams, the New York Fed president, who is the uh, permanent uh, uh, vice chair of the Federal Market Committee. And there's Lael Brainerd, who is the recently uh, nominated and approved vice chair of the Federal Reserve Board. She took office in May. And the idea here is this is classically the troika, right? These uh, two vice chair and the chair are the ones who are seen as, a, I guess, an inner circle on setting monetary policy. And uh, uh, typically there is not a whole lot of uh, monetary policy space between these three when it comes to the setting of policy. Uh, they tend to be, uh, the three of them, uh, uh, pretty much in sync. And even if they maybe disagree behind closed doors, they don't typically do so publicly. Um, and uh, today, the speech, obviously, a uh, you know something the market has to really take into account, the idea that uh, uh, Fed Chair uh, Jay Powell talked about, the idea of pain in the economy, and really answering a question that's been out there among uh, uh, Fed observers, which is, how might the Fed react if there were indeed a recession? And uh, uh, Powell kind of suggesting, you know what, we might keep going with our uh, uh, strong uh, medicine against inflation here, even if we uh, people did experience some pain out there. It isn't often you see or hear a vice, uh, sorry, a, a chair of the Federal Reserve talk about pain coming as a result of Federal Reserve policy. Usually that's the signal if there is pain for the Fed to reverse policy, but that's not the signal that uh, Chair Powell is sending, is sending today. There really was not much for the doves in there. Maybe there was an expectation that perhaps there would be some uh, uh, a few shots to the W. The only one was, that was there was the idea of, you know, at some point it would be appropriate for the Federal Reserve to, uh, to, to slow the pace of tightening. But that came along with the idea that perhaps there would be a 75 basis point rate increase in September, saying it could be appropriate to do that. And so there was also some hope that maybe the Fed would start that reduction in the pace of tightening in September but not necessarily now. And there he is right now talking to Alan Blinder, the former uh, vice chair of the Federal Reserve Board back in the 90s, uh, a guest on CNBC, and that's uh, Michelle Smith right there, the uh, chief of staff of the Federal Reserve. Um, and that completes, I guess, the tradition of the uh, Fed chair. It was something that was started many, many years ago here at Jackson Hole so that the, uh, the, the cameras wouldn't have to stake out the Fed chair uh, to make it a little more civil. This way, with no stake out, uh, you know, we get the... the uh, um, the camera or the shots that we need in order to uh, to tell the story here without having to stake out the, uh, the the Fed chair. And that's how that tradition that's began many years ago here. A favor to the media, perhaps, if you've ever had to stake someone out. Uh, it can be long and arduous. Um, as many have noted, Steve um, Powell really channeling uh, former Fed chair Volcker in his speech, re uh, referencing the 70s and 80s as well. Yeah. Um, do you think that's a fair analogy or, you know, what's different about this time? You know, Deirdre, you ask a good question because uh, it is easy and maybe a little bit lazy for some people to say this is like the 70s, when in some ways it's not like the 70s at all. So you have these people trying to sort of take that imprint or that whole um, uh, uh, series of events and say, oh, well, this is like the 70s when we had high inflation and Volcker had to go to double digits. But again, there wasn't a pandemic in the 70s. There was a 
period of perhaps over fiscal stimulus, but not one that went on for decades. For example, you can you can you know trace back the inflation of the 70s to the uh, Great Society and the uh, Vietnam War that the spending associated with that. This time, indeed, you know it is different. It's always a little bit different, maybe substantially different in that case. But what what um, the analogy that Powell reached for was the idea of you can't stop and start, and that was leaning specifically against this notion that's been out in the market that the Fed may rocket. Um, interest rates up and then, you know, come back down pretty, pretty quickly. We have had several people here who start talking, Fed officials we've spoken to, they talk about this idea of hike and hold. We're going to get up to this rate and we're going to stay there for a while until we're sure we beat back inflation. Um, and that is really leaning against this idea. And, and Powell embraced that language today, embraced that idea. And that's one of the reasons he went back and used the 70s analogy to saying, you know, last time, when we went up a couple times, then we stopped or came back down. That reignited the inflation in the 70s. So that's the analogy he's using. All right, Stephen. And we like to watch this walk, <clears throat> I believe, because if the Fed chair sees his shadow, that's six more months of aggressive rate hikes. It's a sunny day, so I don't know uh, if he saw his shadow or, right. or not. No, uh, but, <laughs> but, but it, we, we've had so much... Um, Fed speak over the last few weeks, and it's interesting the degree to which it seems to, the, the market didn't absorb it. I'm looking at a chart from, from late July when people interpreted uh, the chair's comments as being dovish. We're still up quite a bit yeah. since then. Um, is, that, is that normal for Fed speak to just fall on deaf ears that way? Well, it's a great, it's an interesting observation, John, in a couple different ways. The first is, all the Fed reporters who were in that press conference walked out scratching their head, wondering what the market heard from Powell about a pivot that they didn't hear. Because we're pretty good at knowing did Powell sort of um, unusually raise his right eyebrow compared to his left to make some kind of signal out there. We're like on tenterhooks about <laughs> this stuff. Most of us in the, build, in, in, in the, in the conference did not hear that pivot. And so we sort of came out and said, you know, we didn't hear it. I wasn't there, but the market embraced it and went for it. Um, and then you'll notice, John, there were a bunch of Fed folks who came out that leaned against the idea that there indeed was a pivot at the uh, at the press conference. And what happened in that regard, John, was the Fed funds futures market and to some extent the high yield or, or the bond market became closer in line with the Fed. And I'm not sure. John, if maybe this is an issue of the stock market hearing and wanting to know or wanting to believe one thing, but the bond market has indeed heard it. We went into this uh, speech by Powell, I thought, with the market and the Fed, at least from the bond market standpoint or the Fed funds futures market, a lot more in sync than they were before. If you have that Fed rate outlook chart, I don't know if you have it, but we're up at 380 now for at least the peak rate in April of 2023. That's exactly where the Fed is. So there wasn't much difference there. But you are correct, John, in pointing out there was a differential between the stock market and the Fed. Uh, Steve Leisman, uh, watching those eyebrow raises and, and telling us what they mean. Uh, <laughs> thank you, as always. Right. Meanwhile, one stock taking a big hit in today's sell-off is Affirm. Now down 21%. That company posting uh, actually results that were uh, better than expected along some metrics, but a very cautious outlook. We're going to speak to the CEO, Max Levchin, in just a moment. Don't go away. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back. The NFL's shift to streaming getting to another gear last night with Amazon exclusively broadcasting its first game on Prime Video. Julia Borston has more on the strategy. Julia. Well, John, we were waiting ratings from last night's game. Amazon reportedly warned advertisers that ratings would drop from last year's Thursday games which were on Fox. One source telling me that the league would not be surprised if initial viewership of these Thursday games on Amazon is just half of what the games drew last year. But over time, the NFL expects viewership on streaming to exceed that of linear TV. And this is all part of the NFL's biggest move yet into streaming and Amazon's big bet on the value of live sports. Amazon bought the right to 15 regular season games, which will stream exclusively on the platform starting September 15th. This is part of its push to make Amazon Prime more valuable for its estimated 200 million subscribers and to draw some new subscribers. Amazon is spending $1 billion annually on those NFL rights for the next 11 years, and it'll earn only about half of that much annually on ad revenue, according to Morgan Stanley, with the potential for upside if ads can drive transactions on the platform. But this investment is really much more about building the value of Prime. Morgan Stanley writing, quote, on an absolute basis, the incremental ad revenue is likely to be small. But the strategic rationale of the incremental content investments to buy and build, maintain the Prime ecosystem is more powerful. Rosenblatt, though, is more skeptical, writing, quote, divorce from the pay TV ecosystem that drives hefty affiliate fees. We're not sure how this pencils out better for Amazon than for Fox. Now, as we await those ratings from last night's game, the question becomes whether Amazon will secure the rights for NFL Sunday ticket. They're currently up for grabs along with some other NFL media rights. Amazon is bidding against Apple, Google's YouTube, along with Disney's ESPN. And Deirdre, there's no question that the NFL is the most popular content on TV. The question is how that translates for these tech companies as they're bidding for those rights. Yeah, you can take advantage of that. Uh, Julia, thanks so much, Julia Borston. As we had to break, uh, check out shares of Dell. This is another tech stock getting crushed in today's sell-off after missing on revenue. The end of the PC sales boom weighing on those results. Uh, shares down nearly 12% now. We're back in just a moment. So what else typically gets crushed in a risk-off environment? Well, there's crypto. Bitcoin currently below 21K. It and Ether have been cut in half since the start of the year. You may well know. Coinbase is down 70% in that period as well. There's also SPACs. Blank check deals have gone down every single month in 2022, culminating with a whopping zero issuances in July. Depots, both home and office, down double digits year to date. So we've got a trifecta here. Crypto ATM firm Bitcoin Depot announcing it will go public via SPAC yesterday after reaching a deal with GSR to Meteora Acquisition Corp. Uh, valuation there just short of a billion dollars. Bitcoin Depot CEO said that despite the downturn in both crypto and SPAC markets, the company 
continues to see growth posting record sales and EBITDA. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> Not a great first day of trading, but Tech Check is back after a quick break. Welcome back to Tech Check. Turning now to FinTech. A firm shares plunging this morning on the heels of the latest results. Revenue beat, but that guide getting some attention. It is cautious. And joining us now in a first on CNBC interview for a closer look at the quarter, affirmed co-founder and CEO Max Levchin, or maybe just founder. I don't know if there's anybody else involved in that. Max, good to see you. Um, I want to focus on the guide to start because that's getting a lot of attention. Um, what about the state of the consumer and perhaps the retailer is leading you to be as conservative as you are? Well, first of all, we're actually not being all that conservative. If you compare on a two-year basis, our forecasted CAGR is 60%, uh, almost 40% CAGR on revenue at the midpoint. So these are what I would consider, I think what most people would consider to be exceptionally strong growth company numbers. Uh, we are lapping a year when we launched Amazon and scaled up Shopify to its fullest scale, you know, so far. And so we're obviously comparing to some uh, outstanding numbers. And the conservatism in my guide, if you want to look for that, isn't coming from our ability to continue growing the business, which we think extends decades. But the fact that if we were to open up the credit box more than we think is prudent, we will probably see some pressure on unit economics. And the single most important thing I care about here and my entire executive team cares about is protecting those unit economics, making sure that we continue providing exceptional yield for our capital partners, and most importantly, not overextending the consumer. And so it's a conservative view in a sense that we don't know what the credit future looks like. I think the economy is not in the healthiest place. We just heard Jay Powell speak just to that point. And so I think we are being very cautious in managing credit, but we are extremely confident in our ability to grow the business. And that's what I wanted to get to is, is the macro and your expectations of it. I also think it's interesting, given Peloton's really bad quarter and the fact that you used to get a really huge percentage of your business from Peloton, it speaks to the diversification over the last year plus. So tell me, what are the, the fastest growing categories and what is your approach to international expansion going to be, even as we have this somewhat murky macro picture? Exactly. Um, so we see our growth coming from multiple different domains and um, new merchant and merchant expansion. Our fastest growing category is what would be unremarkably called general merchandise. And that, of course, covers the very, very large scale partners of ours like Walmart and Amazon and target and so there's just an enormous amount of expansion within their user base within their product opportunity so that that's been growing extraordinarily well squarely into triple digits and we, we see wonderful things there uh in addition we are a product driven company we're innovating on products very very aggressively debit plus my, my favorite uh project of the moment. I'm spending an enormous amount of time of my own on it. Uh, we're seeing just unbelievably good engagement metrics. Consumers are using it almost 50 times on average more per year than any other Affirm product. So should give you a sense of just how much more engagement we expect. And then you know, the third leg of our expansion uh, plan is international. Uh, we're on the record now saying that the next geography is United Kingdom. We saw just exceptionally good growth 
in Canada. We serve lots of our US partners there. Uh, we partner with some folks in Canada exclusively and uh, just has done really, really well for us. We expect to do the same thing uh, as we head across the pond. Um, Max, that diversification, however, has cost you in terms of your take rate or what you earn off of each transaction. When I look back over your financial results on a quarter over quarter basis. Um, revenue has been flat. Um, it's also as a percentage of GMV has decreased over the last year. Um, so what are you giving up here? And also, when you look at this Amazon Peloton partnership, is that an opportunity for you or is it a problem? Your take rate is so much higher with Peloton now that it goes to Amazon. Does that set the precedent going forward? So, first of all, the take rate metric is a result it's an average and it's a result of a mix and we talked about this before but mix change for us is a really important driver the fastest piece of our growth right now is coming from what we call split pay i think folks call it paying for but it's a typically and for us is no exception a smaller percentage of gmv that falls down to revenue and ultimately re revenue less transaction cost our long-term guide for revenue less transaction cost has stayed between three and four percent for a very very long time now this quarter we just reported we kept it at 4.3 which is well north of our long-term guide so in terms of our actual bottom line metrics we think we're, we're doing extraordinarily well uh, as far as amazon peloton um new announcement goes a little bit too early to report obviously those are two very large partners of ours uh i would expect that uh, we should see incrementally new opportunities uh from this it's fantastic that Peloton has found themselves a really great new distribution channel. It so happens that we are already available in it. Um, now, I, I want to ask about the Debit Plus, uh, the debit card um, that you've got, and that there's a mobile digital component to that as well. You said you're spending a lot of time on that. At the same time, I noticed that you've been a little slow, conservative, again, on a firm savings. You're at about a 1.3%. APR there, but didn't raise it really quickly after, uh, you know, rates went up. Why the focus on debit plus and, and how strategically important or not is savings to you right now? Uh, we just raised the API on savings. So uh, I think uh, we'll, we'll continue to monitor what the Federal Reserve does and we'll, we'll respond in kind uh, with our bank partner. Obviously, this, this is not our savings, we are partnered with Cross River Bank to, uh, to deliver this value to our consumers. And it is important. Uh, it's actually quite similar in its importance to a firm um, as Debit Plus is. Our savings using consumers are much more engaged than the ones that are not. And so it's definitely yet another thing we do to give folks a reason to return to the Affirm app to check out our other features. We've talked about this before, but we see ourselves as a financial super app. The debit card is an extraordinary engagement device. The savings product is really important because it allows you to also save instead of just spend, which we, we think is really important for consumer health. It gives us incremental point of view on your cash flow, which helps our underwriting, which ultimately is what this entire business is all about. You know, if you sort of strip it all down to what is a firm, where's our competitive advantage? Over time, people will see that underwriting and managing credit and risk is what separates us from the pack. And uh, I, I think so long as we continue doing well on all those vectors towards that goal will we'll do very well. That focus is what led to the guide. Uh, Max, thank you. With the investors not taking that guide in stride, at least for today, the stock down at the moment, 20%. Max, thanks. Thank you.
Markets, though, they are off session lows. The Nasdaq is still down more than 2%. However, the Dow still off by more than 500 points after that hawkish speech from Fed Chair Jay Powell. Tech Check is back in a moment. I just don't want to build something that makes people super angry. Right. Right. Um, and I think that these things have different charges to them, right? I mean, Twitter, I agree. It's it's like you're, you're on it, and it's it's the, the the plus side of it is that you get all these people who are super witty and are saying super insightful things, but a lot of them are very cutting, right? And yeah. and like and I find that it's it's hard to spend a lot of time on Twitter without getting too upset. Um, on the flip side, I think Instagram is a super positive space. That's uh, Mark Zuckerberg on Joe Rogan, Rogan's podcast yesterday. Shout out Twitter there, D, but he hasn't tweeted in a decade. So how does he know? <laughs> uh, I don't know what to say here. Kettle, pot, black, Twitter, uh, Instagram is a fun, safe place. To, I don't know. I know a lot of people who might disagree with that. Yeah, it helps Leave if you post that. something. Session lows for a lot of the major indices. That does for Tech Check. The half starts now with the judge. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life, too, because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Repatha.com or call 1-844-REPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Repatha.